This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Genes, genomes and genetic technology are playing increasingly important roles in our lives, industries, food and healthcare. And at a point in the not too distant future, we're probably going to have to grapple with at least some of the contents of our DNA. But is the public really prepared to look inside its genes? We're taught at school about blue and brown eyes, dominant and recessive alleles, and you will have one or the other. And I clearly remember putting my hand up and asking the teacher, what about green eyes? and was told not to worry as it wouldn't be on the exam. (laughs) Plus, the company aiming to bring molecular biology labs for all, and our gene of the month is crunchy on the outside. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for June 2016 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Technology and scientific research gather pace and genomic sequencing procedures become cheaper, having a good understanding of genetics will become more and more important to us all. From getting a genetic test at the GP surgery to choosing between genetically modified food or its unaltered but selectively bred counterpart, or even streaming children in school based on their genetic ability, genes are playing an increasingly prominent role in science and society. But what does the public actually know about our genes and how they work? That's the question that intrigued PhD student Robert Chapman from Goldsmiths University of London. There's been so much development in the area of genetics research um, and we're not really, as a society, in a place to debate that those developments very effectively. Uh, so what I'm trying to work out is why, why we're not in that place and what we can do to help us um, as a society develop the tools to debate these issues that are going to become more and more important as this research develops. I know I've just written a book that's aimed at the public to help them understand genetics and I think, yeah, yeah, everyone should just buy my book. But I guess it's not quite as simple as that. How, how do we find out what people know? I guess that must be the starting point. It absolutely is. And the first thing we're doing is piloting um, a research study to look at exactly that question, what people know, what they don't know and what they think they know. Um, We're hoping to find out also if there's any uh, predictors of areas of knowledge or concern. So, for example, do people from certain ethnic groups hold different concerns to other groups? Um, Are there age differences? Are there international differences? Um, Is the way that uh, genetics is taught at school um, a predictor of, of concerns and things like that? So we're really trying to do an empirical, quantitative study Um, I believe for the first time in the broad area of genetics. There has been research in this area focusing on medical genetics, um, but not generally the the issues as they apply across society. So that's the new thing, hopefully. So everything from pea plants to pandas. Exactly, yeah. I couldn't say it better. (laughs) So tell me a bit more about the study. What are you actually doing? What are you asking? Who are you asking? So I can't give too much away because we've just piloted it and um, I'm hoping that some or all of your readers will be interested enough to engage with the study when it when it uh, is published. Um, but we're looking at uh, what people know about genetics. So there are general knowledge questions. We're looking at um, how they feel about genetics. So do they have concerns, for example, about 
gen uh, genetically modified foods. Um, we're also asking for information about their demographics. Um, so this is very much a first stage. We're hoping to target it to as many people as possible. Uh, we're aiming for about 5,000 participants, um, stratified by profession and country. We're asking people whether they're parents or students, so we can really build up a picture of the demographics of our participants and see if there are any trends that we can spot, that which, which then might help us target training material information more effectively. We've touched on why this is so important, but let's dig into that a bit more. Why do the public really need to get to grips with genetics as opposed to any other scientific discipline? Um, it's not necessarily as opposed to any other. I, I think this, this debate about genetics is at least as important as the debates about climate change. And people seem to be very um, much more informed about those issues, for the, for the most part. Um, but what we're learning about genetics is uh, fundamental, it's providing information that might uh, cause a fundamental shift in how we relate to ourselves and to each other. Um, so we are learning what it is to be human and, and the interactions that make us who we are. And if we can then control those interactions or, or, or um, manipulate them. So, for example, if we can say this sort of environment is not conducive for this sort of person in the development of reading skills, should we be doing that? So that's why it's important. It fundamentally changes how we relate to ourselves and each other. There's been a lot of talk about using genetic tests in things like cancer medicine. So you can test someone's tumour and say, OK, it's got that gene fault, so you need XYZ drug. But you're talking about touching on much more broader social issues, things like education, lifestyle, upbringing, very much wider issues. These haven't been talked about at all. No, and that's why it's such a huge project. It's such a huge undertaking. And this is just the start of the conversation. Um, it's a huge issue. And there is uh, there are great resources out there from the Sanger Institute, the Wellcome Trust, Nuffield, um, but most of them focus on biomedical implications of genetic research. And what we're hoping to do as part of the Accessible Genetics Consortium, which is the consortium I've been part of setting up, is look at just improving general genetic literacy so that those issues, but also more general um, sociological issues, can be discussed more usefully. This may be an impossible question to answer, but if there was one thing, one concept or one fact that you wanted the public to know about genetics... Would it be? It's not a difficult question because I've been thinking about it since I was about 15. Um, I think one of the big difficulties is that people consider genetics in quite binary terms. We're taught at school about blue and brown eyes, dominant and recessive alleles, and you will have one or the other. And I clearly remember putting my hand up and asking the teacher, what about green eyes? And was told not to worry as it wouldn't be on the exam. <laughs> I've got green eyes. I always wondered about that. <laughs> so I think if that's if we if 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 we can work to to help people learn a little bit, and it's not much more. You don't need to know much more about genetics to understand why that simple Mendelian pattern is only applicable in rare instances. And in fact, the principles of Men Mendelian inheritance work. But you've got to remember that this is across multiple genes, and those genes have interactions with each other and the environment, which is a much bigger issue. But for my mind, one of the 
one of the fundamental things to address is this idea that there is a gene for A or a gene for B. Um, it's simply not that simple. Robert Chapman from Goldsmiths University of London. And the website for the Accessible Genetic Consortium is www.tagc.world. As Robert says, it's vital that we start a public conversation about genes, genomes and genetics. But how? One way, according to a new project launched by the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, might be through fictional characters in modern culture, such as the X-Men film franchise. Characters like Wolverine and Storm have probably done more to increase knowledge of the terms mutants or mutation than any number of biology teachers. John Roberts is leading the study. So I was working as a genetic counsellor uh, in Addenbrooke's um, and um, I was interested in how um, new genomic technology was sort of going to affect uh, genetic counselling and I wanted to explore how families would communicate not just when they were discussing one gene at a time but how potentially with a whole genome sequence they'd be discussing potentially thousands of genes at a time. So um, that was sort of the starting point um, was kind of applying uh, ideas from genetic counselling, but looking at how they would uh, impact us in the era of whole genome sequencing. Traditionally, people have maybe had a family history of a particular disease. They've gone to a genetic counsellor, had a test and said, OK, yes, it's it's this breast cancer gene that you've got, rather than looking at the entire genome and going, oh, what's in there? Yes. So so I think that that was sort of the, the point at which I was coming at it, is that often when people have genetic counselling, they're coming with a specific question. Um, and often a lot of time can be given to answering that question, kind of going through the ins and outs of a particular gene. Often the family will know about that as well. Whereas with the genome sequence, there's lots of different questions that could be asked. And often people might not be familiar with kind of the questions or the answers they might get from a genome sequence. So it, it felt as if there was um, potentially new questions that were going to kind of arise from that and new ways that families would be sort of interacting with genetic knowledge. And are we talking about in-depth genome sequencing or the kind of off-the-shelf sort of the 23andMe type kits that people can just buy and, and do? A bit of everything, really. I'm kind of interested in both it in a kind of narrow and a broad sense. So I think I'm interested in what happens when you have a genome sequence or you have a direct-to-consumer test and you find out that you've got something very specific um, but I'm also kind of interested in it on the broad sense of what happens if you just go and have a genome test, you just to find out about your ancestry um, and kind of how that kind of gets talked about in the family and how that might spark an interest uh, in genetics. What are you actually investigating? What are some of the tools that you're using? Particularly interested in how we can use people's own interests um, and their skills and their knowledge to spark an interest in genetics. So I think broadly it could be kind of thought of as bottom up as opposed to kind of top down. I'm drawing on a particular tool from uh, sort of sociology called Funds of Knowledge that was developed um, primarily in the States um, with disadvantaged families in educational settings that looked to bring children's and families' own skills and competencies into the classroom to kind of help with learning experiences. So as an example, if a family really, really likes football, you could try and steer it around football to help them learn something. Exactly. So it, it's it's been shown as quite a good way of, of helping people engage in topics where they might have been um, sort of put off before when they sort of think it's not for them. So there's there's an issue in, in science as well with people not sort of thinking that science is for them or, or sort of not thinking they're sciencey people. 
And um, I, I kind of wanted to make sure that I, I bypassed that and tried to engage people who otherwise might be off put by, you know, reading something about genetics or um, genomics and might sort of see that and think, oh, that's not for me. Whereas I wanted to make sure that I was kind of reaching a wider audience. So my starting point is finding out what people are interested in, um, what they're good at, what they think they're good at and using that as a springboard to engage people with with genetics. And one of the common ways that we hear about genetics is through things like films and, and popular culture. I'm thinking of the mutants in the X-Men or a film like Gattaca or something like that. Is, yeah. is that a really good inroad to helping people talk about genes? I, th- I think it's an excellent way of, of, of getting people interested in it because uh, I think it's it's a huge source of people's language and familiarity with genetics. And I think it's something that that um, shouldn't be kind of looked down on, but but really respected. Um, I think some people worry that the science in films is is an accurate or kind of overblown. But I think actually a lot of uh, new research that looks at how people engage with films recognise that the people people know that and and are able to kind of recognise that, that that the science is a bit silly. But it's also their major in to knowing about science. Um, so an example might be the, the word mutation. Um, when Stanley created the X-Men, he originally wanted to call it the Mutants, but it, it was uh, sort of voted down as a name because it was thought, well, nobody understands what a mutation or a mutant is. Yet now it's a common word used, and I think people have a, a rough idea of what it means. And I think that that popularisation has come about not necessarily through sort of high-end public engagement with science, but through popular culture, films, TVs and comics. Although sadly, uh, for my friends who've had 23andMe tests done, it doesn't tell them that they've got x-ray vision. Unfortunately not. <laughs> no, that would be nice. Um, and I, I, I had a, a friend who uh, visited, um, I work at the, the Genome Campus uh, in uh, south of Cambridge, and, and a friend visited it and was, was um, rather hopefully he's going to get bitten by a spider and become Spider-Man, and I had to... Sort of rather disappointingly, <laughs> that that wasn't the case, but but I think you know it, it is often the the way that people uh, will be. You know, you talk about films, you talk about books, you talk about comics, and it gets people interested, it gets people talking, it gets their imaginations going, and that's what I really want to build on. So, tell me a bit more about the specifics of the project. So what is this research project actually going to be doing? So it's, it's going to be split into two parts. The first part is an online survey, sort of a broad survey that looks at um, people's familiarity with genetics in different contexts so you know how many people have uh, seen it in different different films different books um, and it also sort of aims to get an idea of kind of broadly speaking what what people's uh, interests are and if there's any overlap with things that would, that would be particularly kind of helpful for, for um, sort of thinking about public engagement with genetics and then after I've done the survey I'm going to do some sort of family interviews and some focus groups that are going to um, look at how people kind of talk about inheritance, how they talk about films, how they talk about what they're interested in, and just sort of try and see that knowledge in context. Because I'm, I'm interested partly in what people know, but also how people use that knowledge in context. Um, and th- the reason for that is that knowing about genetics, I think, is going to be quite important for empowering uh, people and empowering families. And if you're going to empower people, you need to know not just what they know, but actually how confident are they to use that knowledge in different contexts. And do you think maybe one day we'll see a, a superhero film that has a genetic counsellor in it? I hope so. Um, there's there's the film called Still Alice, I think, that's come out recently, that's the, that deals with the sort of inheritance in quite a sensitive way. But I, I would love to see genetic counselling kind of um, in... in uh, 
in film and TV and really kind of get it into the mainstream. Because I think a lot of the time people only know about it if they've had genetic counselling. So I'd love to see, um, I think um, a superhero film would be would be interesting. I think one of the big ways it's going to get, in, get into popular culture is through soaps. So there was the big storyline of, um, I think it was Bracca that came out in, in EastEnders. I think that's a really good way of reaching lots of people and, and getting um, ideas of genetic counselling, what genetic counselling is, into the wider discourse. It's through things like, like Stokes. John Roberts from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. And you can find out more and even take part in his research project at www.characterofdna.com. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be learning about a gene of the month that's crunchy on the outside. But first, imagine all the kit you need to start your very own molecular biology lab, packed down into the size of a laptop bag and perfectly portable. This dream is now becoming a reality, thanks to the work of Philip Boeing and his Kickstarter-funded project, Bento Lab. Bento is this Japanese packed lunch, but yeah, it has that kind of modular look, and we like the idea of it con- connoting kind of portability. Well, it has three or four essential components. So that it, if you want, the heart is kind of the centrifuge because it's in the middle, and that's just a, it's a pretty powerful small mini centrifuge that you can use to you know extract DNA from cells, for example. And then maybe the most important tool is the is the PCR machine which is a copying machine for DNA. It's a thermocycler, so it's a, a block of metal where you can put tubes in and you can program the temperature very accurately and kind of make program cyclic uh, programs. And then there is a gel electrophoresis chamber with a blue light transilluminator. Now, that's a pretty big word, but basically it's a little box where you can um, separate DNA fragments by size and or sort them and you can visualize them, so you make them fluoresce. So you get kind of a barcode image of lines that are actually fragments of DNA of different sizes and that can tell you a lot of information about the sample. Basically you can purify DNA from a sample of tissue, sample of cells, you can copy it, you can make lots and lots and lots of bits of the bit you're interested in and then you can see it. I mean that is pretty much what I spent my PhD doing. Yeah so now uh, you can... (laughs) I could have done it all in my bedroom. Yeah exactly. (laughs) Well, <laughs> and when it comes to some of the more advanced DNA analysis techniques, you know, we talk a lot about gene sequencing mm. or being able to cut up bits of DNA and, and stick them together. Is it possible to do those kind of techniques with this setup? We always thought of it as a generic laboratory, you know, just as you can run many pieces of software on a computer, we wanted it, you to run many kind of different ex- uh, experiments on this thing. Of course, a lot of the times it depends on the enzymes that you have and the, rea- the reagents that you have. It's always also chemicals that you use to interact with the DNA. And um, there's no reason why you can't, for example, put two pieces of DNA together and use gel electrophoresis to confirm that, uh, for example, with mental lab. So I think especially also if you have other tools or you're part of a citizen science laboratory, it really slots into um, other experiments that you can, can do. And what about if I wanted to read the DNA sequence of a piece of DNA? Yeah, so, so Bentelab is not 
a sequencer. Um, that's a much more advanced kind of technology. But you can work with a tool like the MinIN, for example, uh, which is this uh, USB size um, nanopore sequencer. Very kind of advanced, not quite cheap. <laughs> so I think one experiment costs you, uh, like one of those flow cells costs about a thousand pounds. So maybe a little bit out of the reach. But, but you can also obviously use external sequencing services. So in any case, you will need a tool like Ventilab to prepare the sample. Um, you know, centrifuge, PCR, to prepare a sample and then um, process it further. Um, so it's not very expensive to then send a short read uh, out to a sequencing service and a few days later get an email back with the sequence. Who do you see using it? Who's your target market for this? Well, we have a couple of different ambitions for it. So, of course, it's great to, to have a essentially mini-laboratory that's quite affordable and easy to, to take into the field, for example. So a lot of scientists that are interested in that um, and a lot of teachers uh, that are interested in actually being able to demo or, or do these experiments with their students in classrooms or in a teaching labs in universities. So that's great. We are really driven by movements like the maker movement in electronics and computing, things like Raspberry Pi, things like Arduino. And um, so we do have an ambition that we can have a nice, active community of citizens from all walks of life uh, that are doing different projects. So there is right now, in terms of beta testers, a group of pensioners in Wales that are using a Bentolab setup to uh, analyze different mushroom sam fungi samples all over Pembrokeshire. Uh, and there's a citizen scientist in, in Switzerland who, who tests uh, the genetics of yeast found in beer. To, to create a kind of taste genetics of taste map. Essentially tests, the, extracts yeast DNA from beer and looks at the genetics um, of that yeast and sees how it relates to the taste. So it's a, it's a really great setup for him to drink a lot of beer on his, <laughs> on his job. Excellent. Um, but also, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, for me, it's kind of a textbook example of it's a serious scientific project but it's something that you wouldn't really usually fund or that wouldn't really usually be done if those tools weren't accessible. And it's something that's really interesting to so many people. And um, so, yeah, that's a project that we really like. Um, so we kind of like all these slightly more, you know, different hobbyist uh, approaches to, to doing science. And we would want to have, we want to encourage that, that kind of community. When you see the idea of a lab like this, and maybe I've just got a bit of a twisted mind, but I think... I could start taking DNA samples from people mm. and testing them. You know, I could work out, is my dad really my dad? Is there a risk that people might start doing that? I mean, there's, there's a risk like this already. Um, so, I mean, if you, did, if you had that kind of ambition, which I don't think you have, but if you did my have My dad that, is definitely my dad. <laughs> see, there you are. Um, so it's always good to trust your parents, first of all. Before, <laughs> but um, if you really had that ambition, I mean, obviously there's already services that you could use. You have to sign a legal waiver but I guess you're already past that point in this scenario but even if so I mean if you really want this equipment you can get second-hand equipment of eBay it's going to be more expensive it's not going to be nearly as nice to use but if someone has nefarious um, ideas of what to do with this equipment they can do that already what we want to do therefore is um, we do want to encourage the science but we also want to raise the kind of maturity of the conversation so for most people who are starting for the first time with Mentolab, they are getting a kind of starter kit with all the reagents and bits and bobs to get started. And we really embed that in a context of not just understanding the scientific processes and the kind of craft that goes into it, but also the, the legal responsibility, the bioethics side of things, and the really understanding how to interpret a result and how to contextualize it. So not just, oh, okay, I found this gene, but actually, what does that mean? And what are the consequences? 
What would you hope for if people do get, if many, many people do get their hands on the bento lab and start mm. doing science with it? Well, I think it's it's so hard. It's it, it's really hard to to foresee the future, <laughs> and there are many examples of people getting that wrong. I mean, I think there are some clear short-term examples. Um, so, for for one thing. What I would like to see is more people knowing about um, their genes and genetics as a whole, and also not just knowing, okay, I have genes for this and that, like 23andMe, um, but also knowing what that what they can know from that and what they can't know from that. So it's not just about being able to do more genetics testing, but also being able to to understand that result in a context. So we do want to kind of make that a little bit more intellectually serious. I mean, we come from the synthetic biology community and those communities, and Bentolab is kind of a start for us, but we do want, just like in software engineering, what's interesting there is not that just big companies and, and, and academics can write software, but so many people write software. And so you can have a very specific app on your iPhone that was made by someone who had exactly the problem that you had. Now, in biology and biotechnology, the, it's not like that. You really have to have a lot of money and a lot of expertise to be able to do anything, any interesting project. And so I think what's already happening with some of the users of Bentolab is that we are starting to use DNA and genetic technology for much more interesting, smaller-scale projects like this Beer Decoded project. Uh, so we, want, we, we hope to encourage you know, projects that, um, of that kind of scale. What other things could I do if I had one? Well, I mean, for sure, Bentolab right now is mostly about, about DNA analysis. Unless you, you know, you have access to other tools, and then of course, you know, it just replaces part of your normal lab setup, and you can do anything that you can do in a molecular biology lab. I think what's what would be very interesting is starting to have this community of people who um, do distributed projects. So it's not just you know you doing a project in your garden, for example, but maybe other people doing a similar project in their gardens in India, in, in South America, and comparing what uh, that. So there, I think there is a lot of um, potential for things like you know ecology and uh, biodiversity studies. Um, and I mean also, again, I have to come back to this PC analogy, but what was interesting there was not... You know, like Apple and Microsoft didn't come up with the first examples of what would really drive PC adoption. That was, for example, business people who came up with the idea of Excel. And suddenly everyone had to have a computer. Uh, so I think I'm, I'm very interested in what happens when certain people of certain needs, maybe in agriculture or health tech or so on, find out how they can use this because suddenly the, the technology becomes so available and suddenly everyone, you know, every farmer needs one because because they can, they've found out how to do something with their soil or to analyse something with their soil, for example, that's really relevant. I can see a really interesting application in the developing world when you're thinking about tracking mm. outbreaks of diseases like mm. Zika or Ebola, to have something that effectively fits in a laptop bag mm. that you can take around that looks very sturdy. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of interest now also with this new um, rapid sequencing technology to, to do these things uh, right in the field. And there's a big... People are, have always done kind of take a sample and get it sequenced, but it usually takes two or three weeks turnaround time because they have to send it to a lab in Europe or the States. By the time that it comes back, the information is kind of useless. And the person's um, dead or something. <laughs> yeah, but also because they want to do it for epidemiology. You know, they can, they, that, that way they can really trace, okay, this, Ebo, this new Ebola sequence um, it relates to all these other Ebola cases, and they can really tell how the how it spreads and um, when a new strain emerges. Uh, so there's interest for that, but it's really ex- you know, difficult and risky and expensive to bring this lab in those, into those places. So uh, 
with Bentelab, that's definitely much much cheaper, much much more robust, and you know it's it's a much smaller footprint. So there's definitely interest in that. I mean, we we don't market Bentelab as a medical product, but in this case, it's really a it's a research tool. Um, so it's not. Uh, so yeah, we have a lot of interest in that in, in that area, and we're kind of we're doing some tests and exploring that. It would be really great to to see it have such a use. Philip Boeing of Bento Lab, and if you fancy getting your hands dirty with your very own laptop-sized lab, visit their website. That's www.bento.bio. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month, and this time it's armadillo. First discovered in fruit flies, Drosophila melanogaster, in the 1980s, armadillo was originally thought to be a segment polarity gene in the insects, required to make sure that the different bits of the developing fly know their front end from their back. Fruit fly embryos with a faulty version of armadillo are stubby, hunched little things, with their normally free-moving segments fused together, a bit like the plates of an armadillo, the crunchy-on-the-outside creature that gives the gene its name. So what does it do? Armadillo, or beta-catenin as it's known in other organisms, including mammals like us humans, is a molecular multitasker. It helps to create the junctions in sheets of cells known as epithelia, such as the skin or lining of the gut. And it also helps to control the activity of genes, responding to signals sent by a molecule made by another important gene called wingless. As you might guess, life isn't great for a fly without proper wingless activity, as they don't make wings properly, if at all. And in humans and other animals, rogue armadillo and wingless activity, or beta-catenin and wnt as they're formerly known, has been linked to bowel cancer and other types of tumour, making cells grow out of control. That's all for now. If you've got any questions or feedback, you can email me, genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me, at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. Genetics.